Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to the A to Z of David Bowie. I'm Mark Riley, and that colourful character is Rob Hughes. And we've got a special announcement, haven't we, Bob? We have, Mark. So, to start, thank you for taking so much interest in our journey through the life of David Bowie. It's a long and winding road. That's the Beatles, not Bowie, Bob. It's a long and winding road, but we don't look back in anger. Oasis? We look back in anger. That's more like it. Oh, shut up. Anyway, we've got some news for you. As you'll be aware, the A to Z of David Bowie is free to download. <laughs> Lunacy. But if you'd like to support us along the way and be a member of an exclusive Bowie club, you can. And here's how. There's an exclusive Bowie members club called Cheap Things. And for just $5 a month, wow, you can be part of it. Why? So now you're thinking $5 isn't much, but what exactly will I get for my hard-earned cash? Well, in short, you'll get lots of great new exclusive material delivered to your door. Well, computer actually, Mark. Via a system called Patreon. That's right, Mark. Patreon is a payment system that allows you to contribute your monthly subscription and offers you a portal to access the exclusive material. Material such as... Interviews with Bowie's cohorts and friends. There'll be regular film Bowie quizzes. Bowie guitar tutorials. Unreleased archive written material. Competitions. And perhaps most impressively, short films featuring the Cheap Things team. Ah, that'll be me, Mark, Howard Nock and Jason Reed. Visiting various Bowie places of interest. And much more besides. All this for just $5 a month. So if you can't resist, simply go to patreon.com that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash cheap things or one word and join up. There's also a website. BowieCheapThings.com Book early. R is for Roxy Music. Ah, Roxy Music, English rock band formed in 1970 by Brian Ferry and bassist Graham Simpson, with Ferry, of course, becoming the band's lead vocalist and chief songwriter. Alongside Ferry, the other longtime members were Phil Manzanera, guitar, Andy Mackay, saxophone and oboe, and Paul Thompson, drums and percussion, along with former members Brian Eno, synthesizer and all sorts of treatments, Eddie Jobson, synth and violin, and John Gustafsson on bass. Now, naughty boy, Bob. Go on. You missed out Graham Simpson. I said that at the start. Did you? I did. Right, okay, well, I'll I'll, I'll forgive you then, because I'm very magnanimous like That's that. That's so I, good of you. I shall be checking this podcast just to make sure that you did. But only say no, this, because know, by two degrees of separation, I'm just really good mates with Graham Simpson. That's fine, mate, but I mentioned him. In fact, H will testify to that, won't you, H? <laughs> I said it in the first <laughs> sentence. Well, yes, uh, Bob. Uh, for everybody out there, H is our uh, wizard on the audio, Mr. Howard Knock. Yay! Oh, hey, big, big up, G H. for Howard. Um, but I agree. 
Graham Simpson, I think it was his nephew, was on the uh, the uh, program one day. Who's on my t-shirt tonight? Then, oh, right. And uh, and he's yeah. So he was, we had a chat about his uncle being Graham Simpson, a founder member of Roxy Music. As I mentioned before, in my you, opening uh, sentence. I'm mark. sure you did, Bob, because you're a professional, aren't you? Sometimes I am. Bingo. Okay. So although the band took a break from group activities in 1976, and again in 1983, they reunited for a concert tour in 2001 and toured together intermittently between that time and the breakup in 2011. So the story of Roxy, the Roxy music story. Hey, all right, let's get to it. So November 1970, Brian Ferry, who just lost his job teaching ceramics at a girls' school for holding impromptu record listening sessions. Never heard that. No. Great reason to get sacked, though, isn't it, really? And I also always, I knew he was a teacher, but I didn't know he was in ceramics. No. (laughs) Anyway, he advertised for a keyboard player to collaborate with him and Graham Simpson, your mate, including Alan Lewis, a bass player he knew from his Newcastle Art College band, The Gas Board, and with whom he collaborated on his first songs. I mean, you know, you've pointed this out before, haven't you? Roxy Music's such a glamorous name, so many different connotations. Gas Board. I mean, from one to the other here. You just would not go and see a band called a Gas Board, would no, you? No, there was a band around the same time called Gasworks as well, wasn't there? There was yeah. as well, and I didn't go and see them either. Oh. There's a cautionary tale. So, in early 1970, Ferry had auditioned as lead singer for King Crimson, who was seeking a replacement for Greg Lake. Although Robert Fripp and Pete Sinfield decided that Ferry's voice was unsuitable for King Crimson's material, they were impressed with his talent and helped the fledgling Roxy Music to obtain a contract with EG Records. Andy McKay replied to Ferry's advertisement not as a keyboard player but as a saxophonist and oboist though he did have a VCS3 synth Ah, which is going to be uh, pivotal wasn't it really? Crucial So uh, McKay you called him McKay I'm going to say McKay had already met Brian Eno during university days as both were interested in avant-garde and electronic music Although Eno was a non-musician, he could operate a synthesizer and he owned a Revox reel-to-reel tape machine, so Mackay convinced him to join the band as a technical advisor. So before long, Eno was an official member of the group, and rounding out the original sextet were guitarist Roger Bunn, who had issued the well-regarded solo album Peace of Mind earlier in 1970, never heard of him, and drummer Dexter Lloyd, a classically trained timpanist. The group's name was partially a homage to the titles of old cinemas and dance halls, and partly a pun on the word rock. Ferry had named the band Roxy originally, but after learning of an American band with the same name, he changed the name to Roxy Music. It's a better name anyway. Yeah, it is a better name. Yeah. So Roxy Music played live, through 71, recorded a demo tape of some early compositions. In the spring of 71, Lloyd left the band and an advert was placed in Melody Maker saying Wonder Drummer wanted for an avant rock group. Paul Thompson responded to the ad joined the band in June of that year. So Roger Bunn, meanwhile, left the group at the end of the summer of 71. I believe there was a Bunn fight. Oh, stop that now. I <laughs> <laughs> should thought that. And in October, Roxy advertised in Melody Maker seeking the perfect guitarist. The successful applicant was Davio List former guitarist with the nice. Now then, Mark, I interviewed O-List quite recently. An interesting character because he, you know, he's sort of on the fringes of many different bands, sort of very important bands, but never really central to any of them. Was he bitter about that? Because, I mean, he, he, you know, he cross-pollinated with Pink Floyd. Yeah. As we know, Roxy Music. Uh, he was also... Uh, who else was he involved well, he was in? He in the, the nice, nice, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, Keith Emerson. I mean, he was a kind of, you know, an important part of that, but he was only in them for about a, a year. Uh, and then, you know, he was in Jethro Tull for a bit. He uh, he toured with John Cale. And Roxy Music, I asked him about this, and he did say what happened was, Brian Ferry said, look, you know, we're looking for somebody 
kind of like a name, I suppose, because we've been turned down by everybody. Nobody likes our music. Right. And nobody kind of gets it. And we just want somebody to get to come in, produce us and guide us a little bit. So that was his remit, supposedly. Right. But the trouble arose when uh, in the really early gigs, and I did kind of Google this, see if there's any pictures of this stuff, but Roxy Music were billed as, according to Davio List, Roxy Music featuring Davio List, and it didn't go down too well with the two Bryans. The funny thing is, though, that you just said that <laughs> Roxy Music got him in because he didn't really have any profile or mm. identity. So they got him in to give them some kind of branding. Yeah. And when they use that branding, they kick him out. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> You'd have to feel a little bit disgruntled in that. And again, you've spoken to the guy, and, yeah. uh, you know, I follow him on Twitter and stuff. Yeah. And brilliant. I saw him playing with Jet. Right, uh, of course, yeah. as I remember, yeah. you know, which was uh, Andy Ellison of John's yeah. Children and all that kind of stuff. Uh, opening for, I think it was probably Hunter Ronson, maybe. Mm. But when you see somebody's been in so many bands, you have to wonder if the personality of that person is at odds with the other bands that he's joining. You yeah. know, I'm trying to put that, this politely. Really. I know, well, that was always the implication, really. And I might put that to him in a certain, you know, certainly worded in a different way. Right. And I think he just felt it was just fate. He said it was just, uh, it was a kind of restlessness because he was in a band called The Attack, who kind of like a mod, sort of freak band weren't they in the mid 60s then he got poached by Keith Emerson for the nice great guitar player as we know and he famously stood in for Sid Barrett didn't he when he went missing at Liverpool Empire one night and then everything else just seemed to happen people seemed to have ideas for him you should be a solo artist you should leave this band you should do this and he didn't he said he was just so young at the time he didn't have the strength of character to say no I'm going to stay put I'm going to do this so maybe he just he was just tossed about by the tides of fate Uh, well that's very poetic I mean there's lots of wrong decisions having been made in there at some point isn't there which is uh, which is a shame for him that's why I just wondered if he was bitter about it really I mean he yeah, you probably have to be, wouldn't you? If you You'd think, think of all so. of those, all yeah. those bands that ended up Jethro Tull, one of the biggest bands in the world in the early seventies yeah. and mid seventies in America, the ginormous. Yeah, and so you just have to think of how close he was, a nearly man kind of thing. Yeah, he did say, you know, the whole Roxy thing. He was a name. He'd been in the nice, so yes, he was a name of all of them because they were, of course, unknowns, weren't they? But he said eventually it was just. The two Bryans wanted to be in charge of that band and they didn't. Last thing wanted was a, you know, a name person on guitar. Well, as we will find out, the two Bryans wanted to be in charge and then one Brian wanted oh. to be in charge, but more of that later. So Phil Manzanera, soon to become another group member, uh, was one of about 20 other players who auditioned. Although he did not initially make the band as a guitarist, the group were impressed enough with Manzanera that he was invited to become Roxy Music's roadie. Well. <laughs> An offer which he accepted. <laughs> so that is strange, isn't it? So yeah, no, yeah, you're not, no, you're not playing guitar, mate, but you can, you can carry me out for me if you like that's strange anyway the band's fortunes were greatly increased by the support of broadcaster John Peel and melody maker journalist Richard Williams yeah Richard Williams he uh, presented Whistle Test in the early years he didn't did he? yeah uh, Williams became an enthusiastic fan after meeting Ferry and having been given a demo tape during mid 1971 and he wrote the first major article on Roxy Music featured on Melody Maker's Horizons page in August 71 the lineup of Roxy so Ferry, Mackay, Eno, Simpson Thompson and O'List recorded a BBC session shortly thereafter. All right, so let's look at the first albums then, eh? All right, so in early February 1972... Davy O'List quit the group abruptly after an altercation with Paul Thompson. He didn't kind of say that, but this is yeah. taken from uh, another source, uh, which took place at their audition for David Enthoven of EG Management. Okie dokie. Uh, so when O'List didn't show up for the next rehearsal, Manzanera was asked to come along on the pretext of becoming the band's sound mixer. He'd been pushed from pillar <laughs> to post, didn't he? When he arrived, he was invited to play guitar and quickly realised... 
that it was an informal audition. Unbeknownst to the rest of the group, Mantanera had learned the entire repertoire and as a result, he was immediately hired as Olis' permanent replacement, joining on the 14th of February, 1972. It's love. Oh, um, yeah. The weird thing is that, I mean, a, a similar thing happened to me. I mean, I never went for an audition mm. uh, in the fall, mm. but I was a roadie and then the bass player got kicked out or left and I've been with him watching so many gigs and that and it wasn't that difficult mm. that I knew all the stuff to play. Uh, great. So, you, you know, there's a template there. There is. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so Manzanera, the son of an English father and a Colombian mother, had spent the uh, considerable amount of time in South America and Cuba as a child. And although he didn't have the same art school background as Ferry Mackay or Eno, he was perhaps the most proficient member of the band with an interest in a wide variety of music. He also knew other well-known musicians like David Gilmore, who's a friend of his older brother, and Soft Machine's Robert Wyatt. He looked great as well, didn't he? Oh, he did look fantastic. I mean, again, Davey O'List did make an effort in Jet because they were a little bit kind of glam and, yeah. and pre-punk. They turned into radio stars with a slightly different That's line right. later on down the, the line. But uh, yeah, you'd have to say Phil Manzanera with those glasses and that jumpsuit. He just... Oh, and a big long hair, yeah, flowing hair. fitted oh, the bill, didn't yeah. he? So the Roxy Music album and its famous cover artwork were apparently completed before the group signed with Island Records. A&R staffer Tim Clark records that although he argued strongly that Island should contract them, Company boss Chris Blackwell at first seemed unimpressed, and Clark assumed he wasn't interested. A few days later, however, Clark and Entoven were standing in the hallway of the island offices, examining the cover images of the album, when Blackwell walked past, glanced at the artwork and said, Hmm, looks great. Have we signed them yet? Wow, OK. So image before style, yep. perhaps. Uh, or substance, anyway. The band signed with Island Records a few days after that. The album was released in June to good reviews and became a major success. Got to number two in the UK in September 72. During the first half of the year, bassist Graham Simpson, became increasingly withdrawn and uncommunicative which led to his leaving the band almost immediately after the recording of the debut album. He was replaced by Rick Kenton. He was, Bob. So, to bring more attention to the album, Roxy Music decided to record and release a single. The debut single was Virginia Plain, which scored a number four hit in the British charts. The band's eclectic visual image, captured in their debut performance on the BBC's Top of the Pops, became a cornerstone for the glam trend in the UK, shortly after Rick Kenton departed the band and they would never Never get a permanent bass player ever again. Wow. The next album, For Your Pleasure, came out in March 73. It was promoted with the non-album single Pajama Rama. No album track was released as a single. At the time, Ferry was dating French model Amanda Lear. She was photographed with a black Jaguar for the front cover of the album, while Ferry appears on the back cover as a dapper chauffeur standing in front of a limousine. John Porter, credited as a guest, played bass on the record, while Sal Maida played bass for subsequent live shows. OK, so they carried on till 1983 didn't they then they reformed and they are currently no more as I understand it yeah Um, let's look at the Bowie connections then alright though so we know that Bowie and Ferry nearly fell out when news of Ferry's Another Time Another Place covers album was released only to be followed by David doing a pretty similar thing with pinups it was all a bit kind of handbags, was it? It was, and we have covered it, yeah. Yeah, and of course, Bowie and Roxy Music go back further, and letting Eno go was to prove to be another favour to Bowie further down the line. Most certainly was. So the uh, Bowie and Roxy timeline, just to by the way kind of thing, but Rick Kenton, Roxy's first bassist, he started out in a band called Mouseproof, <laughs> which isn't a great name either, who got their break at Bowie's Beck in the Marts Lab. Wow, now that's interesting. Just a little aside there. All right then, so 25th of June now, 1972, Bowie is playing at Croydon Greyhound, supported by... By trapeze and Roxy Music, whose reputation is growing in the capital. It was the first time Bowie had met Brian Eno. 
Yeah, and that was supposed to be a mad show, that wasn't it? Yeah. Hundreds and hundreds of people locked out, couldn't get yeah. in. The 20th of August, 1972, the legendary Rainbow Shows, more of which later, uh, by Bowie. Both shows had Roxy Music as their opening act. Or later, Phil Manzanera was to say, David Bowie's songs I like a lot. His management was rather disagreeable at the Rainbow, but Bowie and the Spiders are very nice people, and I enjoyed what they were doing. So already, you know, this is Tony DeFries, isn't it? Kind of mm. pushing his way through, making his presence felt. He is, yeah. So the cross-pollination of Bowie and Roxy, it really... There isn't that much to go at, is there? There's not, not really. much of it. But, you know, from my perspective, which is really why we've included this here, yes. for us to just talk about it, I'm sure that lots of Bowie fans out there also love Roxy Music. Yes. And they just seem to be like the band that, that ran parallel to Bowie, really. Because if you look at Glam, and and all of the bands pretty much had a different idea when it started out, didn't it? Yeah. You know, some of them had been in, in bands in the 60s. If you look at Roy Wood, obviously he'd been, he'd been in The Move. Yeah, of course. Right, and he'd been in ELO briefly. Mm. And when Wizard came about, he wasn't really doing anything different to what he'd done before. He was just a little bit poppier. With a lot of makeup. Yeah, and the yeah. Glam element was a yeah. makeup, which of course he only wore because he was shy. Mm. And also, if you try and break down the glam rock scene, it's not much of a scene, really, apart from the makeup, which it was worn in different styles, really. But there's a yobbish element of glam, yeah. which was Slade, which was Geordie, which was obviously a Brian Johnson ended up in ACDC. Brilliant. Yeah. Mott the Hoople started off decidedly yobbish and ended up a little bit less so. Yeah, certainly, yeah. Sweet were pretty yobbish, but yeah. had all of the mad glam stuff. I mean, there was the old joke about them looking like brickies yeah. you know, in makeup and yeah, all Yeah, they that. didn't suit And it, there was a band they? called Hello, right. who were a little bit like that. Mark Boland was Faye. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, he'd been a right old hippie singing about pixies and stuff. And and obviously he continued to do that kind of thing, all the the mystical stuff. Then you've got the bandwagon jumpers, which will be Alvin Stardust and Gary Glitter, you know, Chicory Tip, these bands who were throwing stuff out there. And then you've got the showbiz, kind of real glam side of it, if you want to look at it like that, which would be Bowie, Roxy, and Queen. I think Bowie and Roxy, when it came to glam, more in common maybe with that American idea of glam that wasn't particularly influenced by what was going on in Britain at the time. So like the dolls, like Iggy and Lou Reed, really. It was that kind of Hollywood sort of faded kind of crumbling chic idea yeah. of glam, wasn't it? I mean, it's often been said that Bowie really wanted to be Iggy. And, you yeah, know, and yeah. so and, and and again, the degrees of separation between the New York Dolls and the Stooges and the Rolling Stones, it's all a blurred line, isn't it? So, it is. I mean, like the New York Dolls were really like the Rolling Stones. I mean, yeah. I like them better than yeah. the Rolling Stones, yeah, personally. Definitely. But they were like the Rolling Stones with, you know, patent leather boots on and jumpsuits and, and makeup. Yeah, and also you've got to remember the real crucial factor with Bowie and Roxy was, you know, that art school background. It yeah. was always quite knowing and self-referential, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, he was clever. He was he was smart music, wasn't he? Yeah. And again, more cerebral as as time went by. But if you look at what Roxy Music were doing and Bowie were doing, mm. as Bowie once described, it was from the neck up. That's right. Whereas like people like Iggy were from the waist down. Certainly. We know. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The A to Z of David Bowie with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. R is for Rick Wakeman. Or Richard Christopher Wakeman, born the 18th of May, 1949, English keyboardist, songwriter, television and radio presenter, and author. He is best known for being in the prog band Yes, off and on, between 1971 and 2004, and for his bonkers solo albums released in the 1970s. He's currently a member of Yes, featuring John Anderson, Trevor Rabin and Rick Wakeman. All right, so he was born and raised in West London. Wakeman intended to be a concert pianist, but he quit his studies at the Royal College of Music in 1969 to become a full-time session musician. His early sessions included playing on Space Odyssey, amongst others for Bowie, and songs by Junior's Eyes, T-Rex, Elton John and Cat Stevens. He became a member of the Straubs in 1970, prior to joining Yes a year later, playing on some of the most successful albums across two stints until 1980. So Wakeman began his solo career in 1973. His most successful albums are his first three, The Six Wives of Henry VIII from 1973, Journey to the Centre of the Earth, more of which in a moment, and The Myths and Legends of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, 1975, all concept albums. He formed his rock band, the English Rock Ensemble, in 1974, with which he continues to perform and scored his first film, Listomania, in 1975. So um, I got to know Rick Wakeman a little bit. Oh, yeah. Um, and great fella. He used to come mm. on the radio one show with Mark Radcliffe and I, and yeah. he was a right laugh. Uh, and he was really, really yeah, generous. And I remember him saying at one point in time, that he was in a traffic jam on the way to come to the programme. Yeah. He said, I was just sat there, and he said, I was listening to you, me and Radcliffe. And when you said something funny, I was laughing. He said, I looked round and all the heads were going in the other cars around him. <laughs> which was just a very general... He said, oh, he, you nice. know, he, was, he was just stuck with all these people all listening to us on the radio, which was just a weird thought. So we got to know him a little bit. And we didn't really badger him too much about Bowie, I don't think. But I do remember that we <laughs> we suggested to him that Mark Radcliffe and I had this band called The Shire Horses, which just did spoofs mm. of other people. I did put it to him that we would do an album with him. Okay, and I think the proposal was, well, it was to be called The Return from the Centre of the Earth. Oh, great. In brackets, it was going to be an alliance in Leicester, <laughs> which alludes to a, a, a no longer building society. Right, okay. Anyway, um, and, and I said to him, what we'll do is we'll, we'll bang some stuff down and then we'll send it to you and you put some fairy dust on it. <laughs> And he declined. Oh, what a shame. I can't understand why he'd do that. I'm quite jealous because I've always wanted to interview him. I never have. Although, the closest I got was when I was with my Mrs. Jane in the Lake District about 10 years ago. We were in Grasmere, which isn't the biggest uh, little village in the lakes, is it? it The biggest little one. It was a... 
I would agree. I'm going to keep that in. And that was like on a Sunday evening. It was all quiet and winding down. Not many people around. We were just looking for somewhere to eat, and there was Rick Wakeman and his missus staring in the at the menu of a uh, curry house. I, mean, I didn't dare go up and say, "Oh, hello, Rick." That's the last thing you would have wanted. Yeah, that's good of you not to do. But it's funny, isn't it? That uh, he's obviously keen on his curry because there isn't. There's a story that I don't think we're covering here at all, whereby he was playing at the Free Trade Hall in Manchester. That's right. With yes, yeah. with yes, in the seventies. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> and he disappeared for a bit below his keyboard. And let's face it, he had enough of them to just get lost in yes. completely. Yeah. And he went down and disappeared. And then he came back up a little bit later. Mm. But people on the front row were going, what's that smell? What, that smells like a curry. And he was eating a curry below mm. his keyboard, yeah, wasn't he? Yeah, that's Famously. right. Great, great story. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, you could get away with it with being in Yes. Completely. You know? Anyway, so come the 1980s, Wakeman pursued solo projects with uh, various levels of success. And from 1988 to 1990, he was a member of the Anderson Bruford Wakeman Howe band, which uh, led to his third stint in Yes. And his discography, amazingly, includes over 90 solo albums. The thing about Yes is that they kind of get together, don't they? Some of them. And then one of them will form another band yes. with, with another ex-member. Yeah. And so these Anderson, Bruford, Wakeman, how these Anderson, Wakeman... <laughs> Asia. Know, Asia. Yeah, all yeah, that stuff. <laughs> I mean, you can probably tell I'm not a big fan, but the, there are all these different kind yes. of uh, combinations of uh, people who were in Yes. You know yeah, I mean? lots and lots of splinter groups. Yeah, but Rick Wakeman, he's made many television and radio appearances in recent years, and he became best known for his contribution for the comedy series Grumpy Old Men, Watchdog... Crime Watch? No, not Crime Watch. I always get them two mixed up. Uh, and his radio show on Planet Rock that aired from 2005 to 2010. And he's written three books, an autobiography and two memoirs. And in 2017, he was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a member of, yes, two memoirs. Do you follow him on Twitter? Uh, I do follow him on Twitter, yeah. And yeah. he also writes a column in uh, Prog Magazine, which I contribute to, which is one of the first things I go to when I get it. Yeah, he's, he's dead interested and yeah. dead nice and dead down to earth, isn't he? And he's been on a diet, hasn't he? Oh, has he? I've not, oh, I've not seen that bit. Yeah, okay. On Twitter, yeah. Right. He's always going, oh, I got up this morning and I'm just setting off now and the wife's just giving me an apple, you know, <laughs> okay. and stuff like that. He's just he's very, very engaging. <laughs> All right, okay. So let's get to his early life, shall we? So he was born in the West London suburb of uh, Perivale, the only child of Cyril Frank Wakeman and Mildred Waitman, the three lived in Woodend Gardens in nearby North Holt. Cyril played the piano in a dance band when he was in the army and he worked at a building suppliers, joining as an office boy at 14 to become one of its directors, while Mildred worked at removals firm. So Ricky... Oh, here we go. <laughs> here we go. Attended Drayton Manor Grammar School in Hamwell in 1959. The family spent their summer holidays in Exmouth. Uh, when Wakeman turned seven, his father paid for weekly piano lessons with Dorothy Symes, which lasted for 11 years. Wow, 11 years. Yeah, she recalled that Wakeman passed everything with a distinction and was an enjoyable pupil to teach, full of fun and with a good sense of humour, but noted his lack of self-discipline when it came to practising. Well, it didn't really do him any no, harm, did it? No, certainly not. In 1960, Symes entered Wakeman in his first music competition and he went on to win many awards, certificates and cups in contests held around London. Wakeman then took up the clarinet aged 12 and in his teenage years attended church and learned the church organ, became a Sunday school teacher and he chose to be baptised at the age of 18. You have to wonder if he was thinking of um, uh, becoming a member of the cloth here. Well, very possibly. It sounds yeah. like he was serious. I mean, uh, if he, well, it goes further into it. Waitman described himself at school as a horror. 
I worked hard in the first year, then eased up. Right. Don't we all? In 1961, during his time at Drayton Manor School, Wakeman played in his first band, the Trad Jazz Outfit, Brother Wakeman and the Clergyman. No way. <laughs> <laughs> With a uniform and the school shirt put on the wrong way round. I like Just that. brilliant. Okay. Oh, that's great. In 1963, age 14, Wakeman joined the Atlantic Blues, a local blues group that secured a year's residency at a mental health rehab club in Neasden. And two years later, he passed his O-levels in English, maths, art and music. Music, went on to study music, art and British constitution at A-level. In 1966, he joined the Concords, later known as the Concord Quartet, playing dance and pop songs at local events with his cousin Alan on saxophone and clarinet. Uh, he used the money earned from their gigs to buy a pianet, his first electronic instrument. So that year, he also formed a dance band called the Green Dolphin Trio, spending a year's residency at a social club in Alperton and curdled milk, a joke on Strange Brew by Cream, right. to play at the annual school dance. The band were unpaid after Waitman lost control of his car and drove across a headmaster's rose garden at the front of the school, thereby forfeiting their performance fee to pay for the damage. It's like something off the Beano. Yeah, Not. good on him. In 1967, Wait- Wakeman began a tenure with the Ronnie Smith Band, a dance group based at the top-ranked ballroom in Watford. He was sacked the following year after not taking the dance music seriously enough, but he was reinstated and performed in Reading. It was there where he met their singer Ashley Holt, who later sang on many of Wakeman's future albums and his tours. In 1968, Waitman secured a place at the Royal College of Music in London, studying the piano, clarinet, orchestration and modern music with the intention of becoming a concert pianist. To enter, he needed to pass eight music exams to earn his A-level in the subject, which required him, as his mother remembered, to do two years' work in ten months. Right, he got there, though. He put in the effort following a ten-shilling bet with his music teacher who believed he would not succeed and refusing his father's offer to work with him. Waitman joined the Royal College on a performer's course before a change to the teacher course, but quickly found out that, in his own words, everybody else there was at least as good as me, and a lot of them much better. I doubt it. He adopted a more relaxed attitude to his studies, spending much of his time drinking in pubs and with the staff at the Music Bargain Centre, a music shop in Ealing. Uh, Wakeman's first booking as a session musician and his first time in a recording studio occurred when guitarist Chas Cronk entered the shop one morning in need of an organist and brass arranger for members of... I can see in the turnabout. Wow, that's amazing, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Oh, thank the Lord for Chaz Cronk. During the session, Wakeman met producers Tony Visconti, Gus Dudgeon and Denny Cordell, who was so impressed with Rick's performance that he offered him more session work for artists at Regal Zonophone Records, which Wakeman accepted, and then he began skipping college in favour of sessions. Well, of course you'd do that. Who would blame him? 1969. Now, Wakeman left the Royal College of Music to become a full-time session musician, playing keyboards and arranging music for various artists between 15 and 18 times a week. His ability to produce what was needed in a short amount of time led to his nickname, one take Wakeman right amongst his first sessions we're playing on Battersea Power Station by Junior's Eyes and in June 69 he played the Mellotron on Space Oddity by David Bowie for a £9 fee after Gus Dudger needed a player as neither knew much about the instrument he went on to play on several tracks for Bowie's second album called David Bowie of course an organ and piano on American singer Tucker Zimmerman's only single Red Wind during this time Wakeman left the Ronnie Smith group and for several months played in a pub band named The Spinning Wheel 1970 so Waitman performed on Seasons by Magna Carta and records by Brotherhood of Man. Uh, what's that? Paper Bubble? Yeah. Sean Phillips and White Plains. He soon became disillusioned with session work. He said, I was getting good bread, but I wasn't getting a chance to be a part of the music. So Waitman's prominence rose during his tenure with the folk group Strobes from 1969 to 1971. He first played the piano for them as a session on Dragonfly, the first album released with Waitman's name on its credits. 
In March 1970, he joined the band as a full-time member and married his first wife, Rosaline Wolford, at the age of 20. The group then performed a series of dates in Paris for a rock and roll circus with various bands backing the circus acts. During one performance, Wakeman pushed Salvador Dali off the stage as he made a special guest appearance during his piano solo. He wrote, I didn't know who he was, I thought. Silly old sod, coming on stage, waving his stick. That's so great. Yeah. Uh, Wakeman's first major show with the Strobes followed on the 11th of July 1970 at the Queen Elizabeth Hall in London, which was recorded for their live album, Just a Collection of Antiques and Curios, as it was called. The set included an extended organ solo and Wakeman's piano piece called Temperament of Mind, which received a stand innovation. The piece originated from improvisations when the band would lose power during a show, leaving Wakeman to fill time by playing the piano. That's so great, being able to do that. Uh, Following the Queen Elizabeth Hall gig, Wakeman appeared on the front page of Melody Maker for the first time, and the paper called him Tomorrow's Superstar. Yep, so he played further sessions in 1971, including Get It On by T-Rex, three tracks on Madman Across the Water by Elton John, and Changes, Oh You Pretty Things, and Life on Mars for Bowie's album Hunky Dory. Mm. Bowie invited Waitman to his home and played the outline of the tracks for him to learn. Waitman later recalled, the finest selection of songs I've ever heard in one sitting in my entire life. Well, that's very generous. And, well, you know, how could you not deny that either? True. Uh, his final album with Strobes from The Witchwood was released in July 71. It marked the growing differences between himself and the group and he made the better paid sessions a priority and made no substantial contributions to the writing of the music. With his income from the Strobes failing to cover his mortgage and bills, he decided to leave. In July 1971, he was faced with one of the most difficult decisions, as he put it, of my career after Bowie chose him for his new backing band, The Spiders from Mars, with guitarist Mick Ronson. But later that same day, he received a call at two in the morning from bassist Chris Squire of the prog rock group Yes, who explained that Yes needed a keyboardist as Tony Kay had been asked to leave following his resistance to learn instruments other than piano and organ. I wonder what they wanted him to play. I mean, he's a keyboardist and he's playing the piano and organ. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe a glockenspiel? I don't know. Maybe. Uh, Wakeman agreed to meet the band as they rehearsed for their fourth album, Fragile, in August 71. And during his first session, the basis of Heart of the Sunrise and Roundabout were put together. Roundabout being the song that they just always chose out don't they at gigs yeah i mean i'm not i'm not keen on yes personally but i, I quite like that one yeah, there's a yeah. few that i like i just mm. found his voice a bit much but i'm sure that he was not bothered fair enough Mark. He, he probably survived that particular yeah. one wouldn't he? uh thinking that yes presented more favorable opportunities for his career and as history would tell us right decision waitman declined bowie's offer and played his final gig with the strobes for a bbc recording for john peel's radio show waitman then appeared on the front cover of melody maker for the second time his second in a year regarding his move to yes so, at this time, his earnings increased from £18 to 50 quid a week. Towards the end of 1971, Wakeman signed a five-album solo deal with A&M Records, and we know that the rest is history. But what we're, of course, interested in here, Mark, is his relationship with David Bowie. Full show. OK, so this is from The Guardian, 2017. It was early 1969. I was 19, coming up to 20. I'd worked with the producer, Tony Visconti, that year on the Junior's Eyes album. I was playing a Mellotron, which was a relatively new instrument and difficult to keep in tune, but I'd found a crafty way. Tony asked, how do you do that? And I said, it's just a fingering technique. And that was that. Bye, fair enough. Uh, Soon after, Tony called me up, he said, and said, Rick, 
I need you to come up to London to play some Mellotron on David Bowie's new single, Space Oddity. I drove up to London and parked on Wardour Street and went over to Trident Studios to meet David. Tony says you can keep this bloody thing in tune, Bowie said. Well, yeah, hopefully, I replied. It was before David was famous, so I wasn't nervous about meeting him. It was just another bit of session work. We knocked it out in about 20 minutes. I think it got to number five the first time round in 69, and then in 75, when it was re-released, it went to number one. I love the blasé nature of that. Just knocked out Space Oddity. Yeah, you know? well, I mean, he's, he's just so supremely gifted, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, he's just of one of them things. It's yeah. easy. Uh, a year later, David called and asked me if I'd play some piano on some new songs of his, so I went round to his house in Beckenham in Kent. I nicknamed it Beckenham Palace because at the time I was living in a tiny little terraced house in West Harrow and his kitchen was bigger than my entire place. He continued, I sat at the piano while he played songs on his battered old guitar. Things had really changed for him. He was a successful artist and he had a young family. I sat at the piano while he played a load of songs to me on his battered old 12-string guitar. Life on Mars took out as being something very special. He wanted a piano solo. He wanted the album to be very piano-orientated. I was given complete freedom by him. Yeah, he went on to say, I've been asked many times if I thought it was going to be a great album, and the answer is yes. I know it's very easy to say that in retrospect, but I've been doing two or three sessions a day for the last three years. At that point, you can tell when you walk out of a session whether it's going to do well or disappear without a trace. I remember telling people I'd just played on what was going to be a very iconic album, which Hunky Dory, of course, was. Well, for a lot of Bowie fans, it's the number one album, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, on the same day, I was asked to join the band Yes. David asked me if I wanted to form the Spiders from Mars, but as much as I loved David, I turned him down. He said I'd made the right choice, and he reiterated that on numerous occasions over the years. I heard later that he loved what I did on Life on Mars. He said it made the track, but that's not true. The song made the track. The man was a genius. I mean, it's great. It's probably my favourite bit on the Five Years documentary when he's talking about how he how he did the piano lines for that and what what Bowie wanted. Yeah, yeah. And, and and he keeps saying, doesn't he, that you know, you play this chord, you'd expect it to go there, yeah. but it doesn't. It goes here, and yeah. that was the genius of David Bowie. Brilliant. Yeah. So this now is from Woody Woodmancy's book, uh, My Life with Bowie: Spider from Mars. He says here, the highlight of Hunky Dory for me, and indeed all of the songs I recorded with Bowie, is Life on Mars, which I think is magnificent. We got Rick Waitman in to play the piano. Rick, who is an absolute virtuoso, had worked with Bowie on Space Oddity, as he was the only session player around who had a Mellotron at the time. Uh, This time, Bowie said to him, do your thing as a keyboard player, but treat it as a piano piece. We only previously heard Life on Mars with Bowie plinking away on the piano. He could change chords, uh, but he didn't have any flourishes or embellishments. So when Rick started playing it, we were gobsmacked. He carried on. Incidentally, the piano at Trident that Rick used was the same one as used on Hey Jude by the Beatles and Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody. Rick's playing on Life on Mars is the best piano recording on a rock song ever, in my opinion, and it's the track that I'm most proud of from the whole of my career. And here's another quote from Rick Waitman talking about Haddon Hall. He said, The Minstrel's Gallery was bigger than my entire house. He also had a grand piano, which was unusual in those days. He asked me to sit down, took out his battered old 12-string guitar, and I said, I want you to listen to these songs. Then he played Life on Mars, and it was fantastic. And he says, uh, It ticked every box. Great melody, great chords, surprises. And when he thought it was going to go a certain place, it went somewhere else, as we just mentioned. Yeah. He was very good at that. When I asked him why he was playing his songs on a tatty guitar, he said... If it sounds good on this, think about what it's going to sound like with good musicians and good instruments. Can't argue with that, can you? So that's it for this episode of the A to Z of David Bowie. But once again, before you go... If you'd like to support us along the way and be a member of an exclusive Bowie club, 
You can, and here's how. There's an exclusive Bowie members club called Cheap Things, and for just $5 a month, wow, you can be part of it. Right, so now you're thinking $5 isn't much, but what exactly will I get for my hard-earned cash? Well, in short, you'll get lots of great new exclusive material delivered to your door. Well, computer actually, Mark. Via a system called Patreon. That's right, Mark. Patreon is a payment system that allows you to contribute your monthly subscription and offers you a portal to access the exclusive material. Material such as... Interviews with Bowie's cohorts and friends. There'll be regular filmed Bowie quizzes. Bowie guitar tutorials. Unreleased archive written material. Competitions. And perhaps most impressively, short films featuring the Cheap Things team. Ah, that'll be me, Mark, Howard Knock and Jason Reed. Visiting various Bowie places of interest. And much more besides. All this for just $5 a month. So if you can't resist, simply go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash cheap things, or one word, and join up. There's also a website, bowiecheapthings.com. Book early. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.